Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. You are tuned to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, as you just heard. And this upcoming show is Wild Oak Living. I'm Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. And we're going to have a really fascinating uh, interview coming up uh, with the authors of the of a book called Standing Up Tales of Struggle and and you're going to want to stay tuned for that. I just wanted to mention uh, that at, right after Wild Oak Living today at 10 o'clock we are going to have the uh, uh, the next uh, inst- the next hearing the next congressional hearing on the January 6th from by the January 6th uh, special committee that's coming up live at 10 a.m. this morning so we're going to add to end right on time today at a little bit before 10 so that you can tune in at 10 o'clock for those for the next set of hearings I'm not sure exactly how long they'll run but we'll find out I guess when we get there so that's uh, a little uh, announcement and the other announcement I wanted to make is um, it's it's been a while ago but I didn't actually have a chance uh, to thank everyone who contributed towards our recent building fund drive it was a huge success and we raised um, really important funds in a very short amount of time and I'd like to thank everyone who donated towards that and now let's start with Wild Oak Living this show is all about uh, living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond uh, long-time listeners will know that uh, this show has been on on Mendocino on KZYX for many many years probably 20 years by now and today I'm going to talk with Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller, they are the authors of a book called Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. This husband and wife team marshal almost a century of combined experience organizing and fighting for gains that strengthen families as well as the dignity and dreams of the deliberately unheard. Um, This book uh, is a collection of engaging stories drawn from the 1970s to today, and those stories wrangle with topics like sexual harassment, racism, economic equality, and work for paid family leave, health care, and safer workplaces. So you see, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Uh, There's a lot of topics in this book. I just wanted to share a bit of uh, information about my guests and and about... uh, uh, about the book, um, the the characters in this book. Well, we'll we'll hear from you from you, Ellen and Larry, when we talk about this. So I I, I don't want to uh, talk more about the book because you are much more the experts to share that information. But I did want to share uh, some background about you from your website. By the way, if you want to follow along, the website is ellenbravo.com, E L L E N B R A V O, ellenbravo.com, where you can read more about the book and also about other books um, that Ellen has written and about the authors, uh, our guests today. So Ellen Bravo was born in Cleveland but has lived in Wisconsin long enough to be a diehard Green Bay Packers fan and say, I'm so, I don't know if I'm going to say this right. Come here once and you bet. <laughs> a lifelong activist. She is the former director of Nine to Five, which is the group that inspired the movie Nine to Five and co-founder of Family Values at Work, a network of state coalitions working for family friendly policies. Ellen is the award winning writer of three nonfiction books, including Taking on the Big Boys or Why Feminism is Good for Families, Business and the Nation, and her first novel, again and again, won praise for being a riveting page-turner that tackles some of the most important issues of the day, such as campus sexual violence, male privilege, and beltway politics. Among her 
commendations, and, and as there's a long list, uh, is the Fort Foundation Visionary Award. And the co-author of the book, Larry Miller, was born in Baraboo, Wisconsin, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and has lived in a number of cities as a union and community activist. Over the years, he has been a member of eight different union locals, including AFSCME, Machinists, Steelworkers, Teamsters, Transportation Workers Union, and the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. After being laid off in his late 30s, Larry got a college degree and then taught high school for Milwaukee public schools for 17 years. He loved learning from his students and delighted to see many of them fight for social justice. That means you taught them well. He also became an editor of Rethinking Schools. Well, welcome, Ellen Bravo and Larry Winkler, for for joining us for joining us uh, this this morning. I mean, Larry Larry Miller. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I had too much green tea. The, I had too much green tea this morning. <laughs> Great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I usually start out um, my interviews by asking you. Um, how did you, what inspired you to write this book? I uh, had written some essays and showed them to folks and they thought they were interesting, but we didn't really see a genre for doing much with them. Uh, so I approached Ellen and asked, what do you think about doing, uh, turning them into fiction, give it, giving us uh, a, a more flexible approach towards what we want to, what I want to portray and what I want to put forward. She thought that was a great idea and that she had written numerous, um, uh, she, she had written numerous things that would connect either as short stories or an extended story. So we started the process thinking we would have short stories, but we realized it was much better to do a through line and, uh, you know, create a full novel. And what we, what was really fun, I mean, Larry's stories were about experiences he had in the South in the early seventies. And, um, we thought, let's make it the character that's inspired by him, whose name is Nick, a young working class white guy from Wisconsin. Uh, and he meets this woman, Sophie, um, in the fifth chapter. And, uh, we see them build a life together, build a family, uh, support each other in their organizing, overlap. And, but the creating the novel in this way also gave us the chance to have, some composite characters and um, tweak reality a little bit so that we could show, for example, two women doing a training together of firefighters on sexual harassment when actually it was each of them didn't do it together. They did it with this guy. It was really fun to imagine them being in the same room, having these experiences. So uh, it gave us some latitude and we had a great time doing it. We What we most wanted was to, tell the story of love and uh, show that organizers are just regular folks who like to do this, everything that other people like to do. Um, and that activism is a, a terrific way to build a life, build a community, create joy and make change. Um, but we also wanted to capture the moment when people, re- the, the, you described the deliberately unheard uh, people who are, overlooked and uh, undervalued understand that moment of recognition that the exploitation they're facing is not inevitable and that it can be changed and that they in fact are the ones who can change it not by themselves but by working together and so we have many moments like that in the book 
And it's interesting by by making it uh, both a collection of stories, but also with characters that continue through the stories and the sort of story through line, you're able to not only focus on on um, different aspects of this kind of unseen and unheard of, you know, work and uh, and and the people that do the work, but also uh, it's a uh, you, you know, you start out with a very young man who's just starting to work, and then, as you said, you know, you you follow this person, and and in so doing, they encounter the various uh, work-related uh, challenges that people of various ages encounter. Right? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And they they learn. You know, we wanted to show people learning and growing. Um, we wanted to show white organizers grappling with racism and being. Uh, naive and having to learn a lot of things. We wanted to show men grappling with sexism and, um, you know, becoming equal partners. Uh, we wanted to show children as, uh, both sources of joy, but also people who themselves understand injustice and can get involved in changing it. So it gave us lots of opportunities. Yeah. And, and while the stories are, fictionalized um i'm i'm on you know my understanding is that they're based uh you know on on real people and real life events is that correct yes uh so one of the things that we wanted to do is is uh for example in my in the early stories i wanted to make sure that there were certain individuals that were portrayed that i had uh related to and had relationship people that i love and uh, were very important to me, but we also wanted to combine some of the people that we had met over the years and uh, create people that would be the composite of of those people, so that we could, you know, the, it would give us it gave us more flexibility. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, it's I found it really impressive that you start out this story by, uh, you know, describing uh, Nick and his co-workers in this job, in this hospital laundry. And I, I have to tell you, I was, and I was, that was very, very, very intense uh, just to, to read that first story, you know, of, of, uh, and the interesting aspect here is uh, my mother, when she neared retirement age, needed a couple more years of retirement credit to draw her social security because she grew up after the war. So she never really had like a full-time kind of career. And um, she worked in a hospital laundry. And so uh, even though she described it a bit, reading your story really brought home what she must have, what she must've encountered. And she did have masks and she did have gloves, unlike the workers that you describe in that story. Yes. It, 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 uh, that was pretty true to fact. Um, uh, the characters were largely who, you know, we changed names, but were largely who who we described. But the conditions there, and I um, say it's the South. These are uh, I was the first white worker in the laundry. Uh, all African American workers, and I attribute it to the sort of oppression, the to the oppression that African Americans have faced historically, and and uh, the, this this company that's largely served the black community in Atlanta, still does today, um, thought they could take advantage of black workers. And so it was, it was profound to me. It was, it was my first really deep uh, lesson in what black workers face in the South. Uh, it was profound. One of the things that's been really interesting is how many people have said to us, just like Nick, 
I never thought about how sheets get cleaned. I never thought about um, all the all the substances and um, contaminations that go that get on those linens and who has to take care of it and how. And the same thing is true for the women in the call center, for example. People have no idea what it's like behind the scenes. Somebody calls them and they just think, oh, how annoying and hang up. And they don't think about the fact that these, when, when you hear this call may be monitored for quality purpose, what's happening to the person on the other end of that headset and how brutal it is and how everything, including how many minutes they spend in the bathroom are tracked and monitored and how much pressure is on them quotas and you know the we just had this great experience of doing a book talk in new york with one of the worker leaders from the amazon jfk eight successful organizing drive in staten island she said the thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back for her she's a 51 year old woman with some young white guy that just out of college never had a real job is her manager and tells her, no, you cannot go to the bathroom. It's like, what are you saying to me? So that problem, you know, the things that get surfaced in these jobs that are so often unheard and unseen, um, I think are eye-opening to a lot of people. Also, one of the things is, you know, when I think back about the conditions in the laundry, um, I'll always remember the first time that I was helping in what the area where you take apart uh, the sheets and pillowcases and everything and you you put them in different different uh, containers uh one of them came forward that uh, a bundle that said contaminated on it and i yelled to the boss what am i supposed to do with this he said take unfold it and put it in the in the containers like <laughs> like the rest of them and you know i thought this that sort of thing was from the past, but when I hear about the unsanitary conditions that uh, food workers, you know, often immigrant workers, uh, but not just immigrant workers, face in unsanitary conditions under this, you know, the, this time of COVID, um, we're fighting the same battles, and we have to be very smart about making uh, making gains. Yes, and I want to talk. I want to talk about, about that exactly, and about your life as activists as well. Let me just take a moment to let everyone know that you are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from nine to ten a.m. right here on KZYX and Z Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. And today I am honored to be joined by two guests, uh, Ellen Bravo and and Larry Miller. I'll get your name right, <laughs> and they are the authors of a book called Standing Up, um, which is a collection of stories uh, that, that, that takes inspiration from their five decades of organizing, and they crafted a novel about the people who clean bloody hospital sheets, forge parts for sewer pipes, arrange flights or process checks, all while caring for kids, holding relationships together, and wrestling with multiple forms of oppression. As the characters stand up, slow down, form unions, leave an abusive relationship, or just steer up good trouble, they entertain and enlighten, and they encourage us to love deeply that we may continue the fight for justice. And that's actually what I want to talk to you about, because you have spent a lifetime together fighting for justice and the causes that you believe in. Um, were, before you, before both of you met, were you activists to begin with? And you, did you meet as activists or did this, was this something that developed after you met? 
Well, we actually met as activists. Um, you know, there was a, a large move in the early 70s to get Nixon removed from office. And in Baltimore, there was a what was called the Dump Nixon Coalition. And uh, all of a sudden, I started hearing this young woman profoundly speak and debate. And uh, I had my eye on her. <laughs> And I'm hitting with my elbow. I'm hitting my friends. Do you know her? Can you tell me who she is? And they, they did. And uh, uh, it all started there. And it's uh, uh, we've been married 47 years now. Wow. So uh, chapter five, I'm paying for my meal, is the story of that first date. <clears throat> Fiction allowed me to change the backstory of Sophie. But other than that, that story is very accurate. And um, we had so much fun writing it. So I said, Larry, here's your assignment. Go see what you remember about that first date. And he remembered everything. He remembered what he wore. He remembered scrubbing the coal dust from his fingernails and around his eyes because he had been on a date with someone who was horrified by it and he didn't want me to be. He remembered scoping out the club where we were going to go so it wouldn't look like he hadn't been there before. And so he'd know where to park. It was just delightful. And I was so charmed by it. And, but also our memories had of the, the, uh, what was said differed slightly. And I put that right into the story so that you could see, um, and get a kick out of it just like we did. I'm, I'm trying to become a better Nick. <laughs> <laughs> So you were both activists before you met, and then you continued your life of activism throughout your marriage, right? We did. I just have to say that in that story, I'm paying for my dinner, here's this guy who, feminism is new to him. He's never heard of a woman paying for her own meal. Uh, lots of other, you know, just the lingo is new to him. But what Sophie realizes is this is a guy who's, fighting pornography in the break room at the steel mill on his own, who has loved his co-workers and has lots of great stories about them, who's helping a woman he knows escape from an abusive marriage or relationship, and who knows kids and loves kids. And she realizes this is someone who knows how to listen, that he really respects women, and that that's much more important than the more superficial parts. She can teach him those. And I, I, I wanted um, to share that lesson as well. That's a wonderful story. That's just a wonderful story. What? Um, I guess maybe backtrack a little bit. What? In, can each of you talk a little bit? What inspired you to live a life of activism as opposed to, you know, any other models of life that you could have attained? And and also, maybe woven into that, what sustained your life of activism throughout the years, you know, because of all the challenges and so many things that should happen have happened, but so many things that should happen have not happened yet. And so I just maybe maybe each of you could take a turn talking about that a bit. Well, I grew up, I, I was very fortunate to, to grow up with parents that uh, in Wisconsin that took a very strong uh, stand against racism and w believed in Reverend King, a working class, uh, working class uh, uh, couple that uh, they met uh, working uh, in a munitions factory during World War II. And uh, uh, so I was raised in a household uh, that believed in equality. And so as I watched the civil rights movement and then became of age when I was 18, I was very much opposed to the war in Vietnam and decided that I was not going to go. I was I was considering going to to uh, 
uh, Canada. I considered a lot of things. And at one point, I became number three in the draft. You remember in the, <laughs> there was a lottery in the draft. I was number three. So chances of me being, uh, uh, drafted were very strong. So I, ju- I actually applied for VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. And I was sent, uh, I did get accepted. I was sent to Tulsa, Oklahoma to do work in the black community of Greenwood where the massacre had happened 45 years earlier. And that's where I be- I got my education uh, from that community about what it meant to struggle for to struggle for justice, and uh, it just became part of me. I'm going uh, tomorrow to see one of the people that was my mentors, who's not very healthy, who actually uh, introduced it to the legislature the uh, reparations uh, a reparations bill. He was in the state legislature in Oklahoma, uh, and so it's it's that community and that work that I that I decided to dedicate myself to. And in my case, uh, I grew up Jewish. Uh, but right near the end of the war, I didn't ever get taken aside to be told about the Holocaust. It was something that was in the air. I knew about it all the time. And so at a very early age, I had to ask the question, how does something like this happen? And people remain silent who see it and that we can never be silent in the face of injustice. That was kind of a core thing in early um, I also grew up in the on the wrong side of the rapid transit tracks in an otherwise wealthy community, so I understood class. It was a for a long time there were restrictive covenants keeping blacks out of the community that was just starting to be fought, and the first blacks came to integrating the schools. And I it was very clear which side to be on in that fight. Um, and then you know I got involved in various things, but at some point, I also found the women's movement and realized it sort of made aha moments about a lot of things that had happened to me. So I think for us, it wasn't a question of choosing it. Um, it was our lives. It was what we, uh, we we didn't see any other way of being that we wanted to be. And the joys and community that we found uh, so far outweighed the disappointments and the um setbacks and we did we have experienced many victories and we know that the world we need and deserve is possible and we've seen the power that can make it happen and we want to be um for the rest of our we hope much longer lives uh you know connected to those movements and and see them come together in a way that will eventually win and is that belief that you know that it's possible? Is is that what carries you through, you know, the setbacks and the disappointments? Um, abs- absolutely. You know, Reverend King talked about the arc of moral of the moral universe is long, and but it bend toward, bends towards justice. That that perspective that he put forward and that is put forward by many movements in the world today uh, is is part of us. And one of the things that that helps us see is that there are systemic changes that are needed, that it's not just cosmetic or every reform matters, but uh, only if it's a step toward building the power needed for those systemic changes. And so we're not surprised when, for example, something we won 50 years ago, abortion, if people could see my T-shirt, it says we have to talk about the elephant in the womb. Um that uh, something that we thought we was secure, in fact, we always knew was under challenge. 
And for some of us, it isn't surprising. It's horrifying, but not surprising that the Supreme Court is about to undo it. Um, and so we, we know the kind of movement that's needed to, to fix that. And uh, same with voter suppression, the same with, you know, the fact that we have sexual harassers on the Supreme Court and recent, until recently in the White House. Um, we, we know the kinds of, we're excited by the changes, by the rising uh, number of union fights, but we also know that the rules are rigged and that the union busters have a lot more power and that that has to change. And so steady, steady, we see the things that are needed and we see the exciting development of the Black Lives Matter movement, the immigrant rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, and so on. We understand backlash and um, we also understand the, the, the seeds of building power are there. We know how to do it. The question is, will there be the resources that are needed for the groups on the ground that are making the biggest difference? That actually brings me to my next question. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, there, I'm asking these questions because I know there are young people listening and, you know, and there, and, and, and like you have, you know, there are different models of life one can choose in terms of going forward. And I'm hoping that, you know, that you're sharing your experience in, in that regard and, and, and modeling the, the life of an activist, you know, can inspire others to, to venture out and do the same thing. So, so I guess my question is, um, I, I recall what you gave Ellen, what you took, talked about in your, the acknowledgements of your book, the little story about your father asking you, you know, why are you choosing this life? You're not making any, any, you're not making a regular income and et cetera, et cetera. So how, how does one combine, you know, the sort of mundane need of, of having to make a living and paying rent or paying the mortgage and, and sending your kids to school and all of those things with the life of an activist? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not asking for like a tax return report but you know like just from a philosophical point of view how, how you know how did you guys work that out well i think the um you know first of all we were we were lucky that we had each other um mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are doing this on their own that's much harder and we were able to uh cobble together enough so that we could pay the bills uh and also we were part of a community so we knew that if god forbid something happened to one of us there'd be people who'd step in and help just as we stepped in to help, you know, when various people had care issues or other concerns that were really hard or when somebody got, you know, put in jail. And we were, you know, the, um, the sustain sustainability, I think, uh, also came from having, we were fortunate to have two children and they were wonderful and um, a big source of pleasure and laughter in our lives. So we always made time, you know, sometimes I, I have to, uh, I remember someone seeing me and saying, um, oh, I didn't know you were on vacation. You take vacation? Of course I take vacations. I hate it when people use the word tirelessly. Um, yeah. Relaxation and uh, other activities, working out, reading, playing games, playing music. There are lots of things in our lives that also help sustain us because, because, one, that's our value, but also we understood that the movement can only win if it grows and grows, if there are many of us, if each of us is special, but none of us is indispensable, that we have to build a movement that understands that and um, and that people need to, you know, recharge and uh, be whole people. 
and that the best way to attract people to the movement was to live that kind of life so that they could say, oh, I could see myself doing what you're doing because it doesn't mean that you have to give it everything else that matters to you. One of the things, one of the things that's so important is that people take care of themselves. You have to, you know, I, I know, have known so many, um, so many uh, single parents that had, didn't have any time for themselves. And one of the things as a teacher that I always encouraged was, you know, parent discussions and figure out ways. And, uh, and I was used to talk to my students, you have to help take care of your parents. It's not just their responsibility to take care of you. Teachers need to take care of you. You need to take care of teachers. We have to be community in all of this. And so it's, it's something that became very apparent to us and, we tried never to uh, let go of it in terms of uh, people's individual people's needs, their children's needs, uh, their family's needs. Yeah, and that that gives me some some also some more insight in in what fuels you and what sustains you and what helps you deal with setbacks. I think that's really important. What you just said about taking care of yourself and taking care of each other and making that. A priority because otherwise it can be, you know, it can grind you down. A life of activism could grind you down, right? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the difference is, um, and I'm proud that, you know, the movement, the Family Values at Work Network, for example, that's really, they have a four day work week now, and more uh, organizers are starting to think about that. It takes resources and it takes support, but it, it, it it's living the change we want to see in the world. And making sure that there's time. There's no one um, in that network, for example, when they have a baby or when their dad has cancer or um, a chosen family member needs them, they can be there. And people will pick up the slack because we understand that's exactly the world we want to build. So we're fighting for paid, real family leave, paid sick days. We, We have to... That also has to apply to activists. <laughs> so it's 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 a world that we want to give our support to, um, but we want people to, you know, this idea of uh, everything is terrible, but join us. <laughs> we don't we don't buy into that. We say things are difficult. Life is hard. There are many many forces against us, but we can come together as community and we can solve problems. We can do things, and so. We, we want to be optimistic and, and hopeful. We are optimistic and hopeful. I'm so glad you said that because this, that is what has motivated me to do this radio show for, you know, more than 20 years. I want to show that a better life is possible. I want to show solutions. I want to give a voice to people who are talking about how to do that, like, like you. Um, well, thank you for that because there's not enough of that. There really isn't. You know, it's, I hear a lot of even public radio just talking about horrible things. Right. And, uh, there needs to be the positive side of that. And how can you make something positive happen without having a positive vision of it? Exactly. Right. exactly. <laughs> that, that has never made any sense to me, how you can just go around putting everything down and then all of a sudden it's going to get better. <laughs> well, one of the things that we hope to do with the book and was one of our... Um, you know, because pride is being able to show the creativity and brilliance uh, that people get when they come together. You know, there's a reason democracy works. The more people put their heads together, they really can figure things out and be very creative and 
fun as they do it. And somebody said, I love it. All the meetings in your book, people have kids are there and they're doing fun activities, but they're like making signs for the protest. Um, there, there's always food and there's always laughter, even when, when things are difficult. And, you know, you haven't keeping a sense of humor and thinking about what's the best way to help people see what we're doing and why we're doing it and um, want to be part of it. That's exactly, you know, what works. So we were well, glad to give examples of that. Last week when we uh, uh, did a, uh, a workshop with uh, Natalie Menares from, you know, who was uh, one of the leaders at the uh, Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, she said one of the things that she loved about her book is was how we talked about how we talked about our uh, co-conspirators, the people that we were doing work with. Um, she says, because if you just think of things alone, you don't, you don't even, you don't get anywhere. But if you collectively strategize and plan together, you come up with some pretty amazing. And she gave examples of great uh, ways that they, that they uh, organized at, in the warehouse. And so we were very <laughs> proud that she liked some of the tactics that we talked about. That's great. And in doing so, you build a community. Exactly. Let me just take another moment to uh, let our listeners know who might have joined might joined us during the hour. You are listening to Wild Oak Living here on KZOX and Z Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. And today I'm honored to be joined by two guests, uh, Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller, and they are the... Um, authors, the co-authors of a book called Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. Uh, and it's, uh, um, it, it talks, uh, the, the, the inspiration from the book comes from five decades of organizing to craft, and they crafted a novel about the people who clean bloody hospital sheets, fort, par, forge parts for sewer pipes, and arrange flights or process checks, all while caring for kids, holding relationships together, and wrestling with multiple forms of oppressions as the characters stand up, slow down, form unions, leave an abusive relationship, or just steer up good trouble. They entertain and enlighten and they encourage us to love deeply that, that we may continue the fight for justice. And I, I have to say these, these, these stories, they will, they will capture you. They will, they are really, really, really amazing reading. So I, I highly recommend. This book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle, by my guest Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller. Um, we have a, a bit of time. I thought we might take a few phone calls if we have time. But before we do that, I really wanted to maybe just pick a couple of stories for you to talk about, to share, to, to illustrate, you know, your um, the, 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 the things that you value and the things that you've spent your lifetime fighting for and, and, you know, maybe, maybe bring them to light for our listeners. I don't know if you want to pick one or two stories to do that. Well, I want to talk about one of the stories that Ellen was directly involved in uh, that she, that she wrote about. Um, uh, it's, it's from, uh, it's called, it's uh, the 17th chapter. It's called uh, feminism. Feminists and Firefighters in Kansas City, 2004, is in this story. And in it, she uh, talks about uh, through nine to five being hired by the police department, fire. the fire department, excuse me, the fire department in Kansas City to deal with a history of a, a history of uh, misogyny and, and uh, chauvinism and discrimination. And so I'm in Milwaukee and 
in real life, she's going there regularly uh, involved with discussions with all of the firefighters in Kansas City and bringing back these incredible stories of people standing up to the misogyny, but also the level of misogyny and the, the kind of support that this was getting, even from the commander of the of the of the fire department, who ended up being a friend of Ellen's, who was very taking a very good stand against this sort of thing. And so this story just meant so much because I'm listening to I'm getting reports as Ellen's coming back from Kansas City uh, ever so often just to talk about it. So it, it, it it's a very significant it, it's true to life and it, it's very real uh, of what I see women, a number of women facing across the country. And what was great about it and being able to write it is that we we were able, you know, people make assumptions. Um, they think that what you're going to do is come in and say all men are pigs, down with men, uh, everything is terrible. And, of course, that's not what we said at all. And so when they figured out that quickly that that's not what we were going to say, the response was, well, look, if it, it's just a few jerks, if you know that it's just a few jerks that did this, although that wasn't their language, um, then then what are you punishing us for? Why are you making us be here? And what we'd say is, we're so glad you said that because you know who the jerks are and you didn't do anything to stop them. And that just blew them away. They thought you're either a harasser or you're not. They never thought about the role they played in encouraging them or letting them be and what it would mean to stand up to them. And in the chapter, one of the exercises we did was to say, imagine that your daughter wants to be a firefighter and she has the talent and the desire. She comes to work here and no one knows she's your daughter. Are you okay with that? So, you know, at first they'd say everyone would know. We said it's an exercise. Use your imagination. Nobody knows. Are you okay? And they wrote their answers anonymously on index cards, and then we used this special spray to stick them to the wall, and they walked around the room. 85% of them said something equivalent to, I'd never let my daughter work with these animals. And when they saw that, they were horrified. And especially when we pointed out, as several of them did too, that every woman who worked there was somebody's daughter. And it just completely changed the way they saw things. And then also we helped them see that the kind of behavior we were talking about wasn't some random joke at the water cooler, that it was designed to humiliate and weaken people and make them feel out of control so that that dirt could feel in control. These are people who literally, whose lives depended on each other and they needed to make sure to wipe this out. And once they saw that, it it wasn't hard to win them over. The few people that we didn't, we knew we never would, but we knew that there were a lot of people who, um, who could be won over and that there was a cadre of people who could become leaders to help change the culture. So that was very exciting, and we were. I was happy to be able to have an opportunity to use fiction to sum it up and share it with other people. That's a fascinating story because I think it also illustrates the idea that you might not be able to to change everybody, but you can create allies that help you deal with you know with with having to live with those, with, like you said, the few jerks. Well, and what they realized is. You know, one of the things we taught them is don't do it on behalf of some poor little woman. Do it on behalf of yourself. Is this the kind of workplace you want? 
or do you want a workplace where there really is comradeship and um, people having each other's back? And then the story I want to point out is the story where, so Nick has worked these factory jobs and then gotten a, um, laid off and finally gone to college and gotten a four-year degree and gets a job teaching, doing what mainly women do and makes less money than he made at all his factory jobs, except for that laundry. Um, and works with his students to fight environmental racism. So we could talk about that now or take your call and then talk about it after. Um, well, let's see. Yeah, let's, let's, since, since the caller is there, let's go ahead and take the call. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Oak Living. Hi. Wonderful show. I just want to um, thank the uh, authors for sharing their experiences and especially talking about self-care and, and leadership and uh, how one goes about uh, c- creating activism and change. One, one thing I w- wondered if they could touch on a little bit about how bullying and targeting happens um, directed at activists and then also internally when, if you're not careful, um, that can arise within a group. So I, I appreciate hearing some comments about that, and I look forward to getting the book. Thank, thank you for your call. Thank you. I appreciate. We appreciate that. Uh, you're going to find bullying everywhere you go. As a as a young child, as a student, uh, you know, as a teacher, I saw it, and uh, you see it in the factories, and it can take extreme forms. And in in the one uh, chapter, uh, dirty tricks, we try to show some of that sort of thing that was going on. But the most important thing is to be able to, just as Ellen did in the trainings in, uh, in Kansas City, you want to try, you want to find your allies. You want to find people that you can work with and, uh, build connection to. And in doing that, in doing that, you can isolate the really bad behavior, uh, this is true in, in any situation, whether it's school, work, uh, whatever it is, because you're going to find haters. <laughs> you're going to find people that that uh, uh, do bullying uh, activity. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it's part of our reality. And, and I would just add to that that the best kinds of organizations are uh, the overused word safe space, meaning we encourage people to share those moments, to name what's happening. If it's within the organization, um, we see that it's, uh, we try to use loving correction to help somebody see that they may have, um, inadvertently said something that had, that did harm, but that the harm is real and that we have to deal not with the intention, but the impact in the, in changing it. But the way that we do that, uh, obviously, intent matters a lot. So we welcome the fact that people can grow, but we also don't discount the harm that their behavior might cause. And I think there's a there's a, Loretta Ross, is, if you haven't read her, has done some great work on what it means to call in rather than calling people out and build the kind of environment that I'm talking about for, for change. But also a lot of that bullying and hate comes from outside. The organization and so you need to have um a safe way for someone to say this is going on and affirm the pain that that's causing 
and collectively take it on. So it's not just their problem, um, but the organization overall takes it on and demands that it change. Thanks for asking that, and thanks for the work that you do. Yes, the speaker, it's a, a great question, and, you know, Ellen is, ad- is addressing it. Uh, we don't know. In most organizations, you can have some very serious debate and struggle. The issue is, is it the type of organization that can can sustain that and do it in a way that uh, you come out of it at a better place? Uh, not every organization has been able to do that, but uh, that has always been our goal in terms of building organization. Of course, between the two of us, I can't even tell you how many organizations we've, been, we've participated in um, over 50 years. Yeah, I can imagine Sounds like a fascinating life. Would you agree? Has it been a fascinating life so far? <laughs> it's been a good one. <laughs> Has it been boring? That's for sure. <laughs> Ask our children. <laughs> and you know what I'm I'm noticing, and I'm kind of in a privileged position here as compared to our listeners who who who, who don't see. I, I see you on 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 Zoom video. And what's just so obvious for me is is your love for each other. Oh, <laughs> it's just thank there you. every second. It's really, really, really impressive. Um, did we have any more calls? No. Okay. All right. Well, if you if you do want to call in with a question, uh, the number is seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight. Otherwise, Ellen, you were about to talk about another. I was story. Gonna, I want Larry to talk about the the the. Chapter that's called "We Won't Let You Pollute Our Playground." Okay, oh, this, is, this was uh, I became a teacher. I'm at a high school called uh, Custer, named after the general, uh, and it was the Custer Indians. If you can imagine, I get, I got hired at this school called the Custer Indians. Uh, uh, one of the things that we try to do throughout the book um, is uh, present the. the very, very significant role of young people, first of children, but then in that chapter of students. So I was doing a unit with my students on the history of environmental racism in Milwaukee because they had these oil tanks buried under the ground in the old neighborhoods, which were largely neighborhoods of color, and oil wasn't isn't used anymore, but, the, but those containers stayed there, and there's uh, polluted oil residual in those tanks throughout the city. So we were doing an environmental racing to identify them. But my students, you know, so they learned con- all these concepts about environmentalism, and, uh, particularly environmental racism. And, and a couple of students come in one day and said, Mr. Miller, we have an oil spill in the neighborhood. Not like anything you've described. It's much worse. And so we identified very close to the school, uh, about four or five blocks away, there's an, a company that cans oil for your cars, and they have these big containers, and the oil has seeped out of their co- large containers into the ground, into the pl- this playground. And so these students said, let's do something about it. You know what I mean? It's like um, they didn't say, let's organize a campaign, et cetera, et cetera. That was my role to assist them. But they took on this effort to end this the pollution and to demand the cleanup uh by this oil company they led this struggle and it's so so important to me for us to understand how these young folks these children have the ability to do amazing things um 
if we don't stand in their way. You know, myself and other teachers and even the principal gave their support, but they led the struggle. And I would, two years ago, I was at a dedication because I later be, <laughs> uh, became a school board member. I was at a dedication for this playground that had been um, completely cleaned up and turned into a modern a modern uh, community playground. And so it was, a, you know, I saw this process and I saw the, the significance of young folks. There, there are actually several stories about children in your book. Um, one of them comes to mind is the one, um, should banks care about kids? I don't know yeah. if you want to spend a little bit of time to talk about that. So that, again, that's the story that came straight out of our lives. Um, and the, the, you know, this was a woman, the low wage workers who their pay was really bad, but they, at least they had health insurance and that's what kept them going. And the bank decided that they'd been overly generous. And they were now going to require, literally starting immediately, the workers to pay what was essentially a week's take-home pay toward their health costs. And this woman, you know, like many people, bravery isn't just um, some superhuman quality. She was brave enough to go public about what they were doing and talk to a reporter because her kids, she, she said, my kids have this habit, they like to eat three times a day. And I, I literally can't stay here. I can't afford this. Um, so we, you know, the only thing I can do is speak up about it and hope that it will change. Because as, as she says to Sophie, thanks for pointing out to me, you don't always win if you stand up for yourself, but you never win if you don't. And it's interesting because one of the things, uh, so these are all, all of the workers there have kids and they realize that if they frame it that way, um, the public will, of course, immediately side with them. And that's what they do. They make flyers of banks care about kids and build a campaign with the support of a faith, interfaith group. You know, uh, somebody says, this isn't a joke. A rabbi, imam, an imam, an Episcopalian priest are all going to be there tomorrow um, and several others. And um, the community comes out to support them because they know that banks have a all we're all employers have a responsibility to care about the consequences of exploitation and ill treatment and that it reverberates of course on children and other loved ones so it was great to be able to tell that story and one of the other things i liked about that story the um at one point you know here's this working women's group and the people that rosa is the main character who's standing up the people she brings together they're curious, you know, should we trust this group? Why do they care about us? And Moses says to them, look, I get, I get it. If our bank gets away with this, then every employer will think they can do this. And so stopping them is really important for everybody. And, um, and that's why they care about it. I mean, they do care about us, but they also care about, um, the principal and making sure that companies get the warning. And that was really true. That's a great story. And of course, you know, banks care about their public image too. So that kind yes. of, they, they don't like that kind of publicity. <laughs> yeah. Right. A great story. The, the actual reporter uh, went on, left Milwaukee, went to work for the New York Times, and I found her. And um, she was so excited that she was character in this novel and, and couldn't wait to read it. And I, I also found the kid in Listen to the Children who'd had cancer when he was five. He now works for 
BuzzFeed, and it was he was so proud to be in the book too. That's wonderful. That was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you: is is you know some of the some of the kids that you've been or young people that you've been mentoring over the years, you know, are, are they are they in your footsteps? Uh, a number of my students that uh, were in my classroom, I just uh, <laughs> in Milwaukee, for example, are are uh, running for office, are in, involved in uh, groups. There's a group called Urban Underground, you know, just a whole variety of of things that I, that I, I'm not going to say I give credit for it. I just knew that once they were became aware of their own, you know, uh, you know, uh, their own ability, their own uh, capability, that they would. Uh, find it themselves. So there's great things going on. Well, unfortunately, we are almost down to the end of the show. We have two minutes left. And I want to just give you those two minutes to share anything else that you'd like to share with us about how people can get the book or any other closing remarks that you'd like to leave us with. So one thing we wanted to do is um, say the one of our goals there's a wonderful author named Imbolo Mbue wrote a book called How Beautiful We Were about the exploitation of a village in Africa by a U.S. oil company. And she used the phrase, the deliberately unheard. And that's what we wanted to do is remind people that everyone has a voice. We shouldn't use the term voiceless. We should remember that people are excluded and deliberately unheard by those who control the megaphone. And so it's very important to us that more stories get told that center the people who otherwise are deliberately unheard. You can find out more information on our website, ellenbravo.com. We hope the book uh, makes you laugh and cry and um, that you'll see it as a great story, but also that it will inspire you in your own struggle for justice. And we hope that you'll give it to people who aren't already there uh, to help inspire them. The publisher is Hardball Press. So you can order it directly from them. The link is on the website. Or ask your independent bookstore to stock it. Ask your library to stock it. That would be great. So one of the things that's become part of the language through COVID is the essential worker. So we feel that this book is dedicated to the essential worker. That's who really this book is about. Um, but we don't want them just to uh, it to be, oh, they exist. We want them to be uh, valued, respected, paid a living wage, and have benefits with uh, uh, paid family leave and paid sick days. We want all of these things. We find them in uh, a number of the European countries and other places, and we want them. Uh, I, the American worker um, is is uh, deserving of these same benefits. So support all the struggles that you see going on, be inspired by them, and let's do what we can to to save democracy, to build real democracy in this country, and to together build a nation that we deserve. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller, authors of the book Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. I am grateful to be living in a world that has you in it. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.